0: Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson. Welcome back to another wonderful edition of The Learning Curve. Kara, how are you?
1: I'm doing pretty well. I can't I can't complain. I'm excited for today's guest, a friend of ours, both like professional friend of ours, personal friend of ours. So I think it's going to looking forward to a really great conversation and also like, I don't know, maybe some more singing. We'll, we'll see where you take us this
0: week, Gerard. I retweeted your first tweet from last week of saying, please listen. Cause I said, Oh yeah, I know where this is going. So it's out there. I have not been called by Sony. Jay-Z hasn't reached out to me. Stevie Wonder's manager has not reached out to it's me. Maybe-
1: just, just hold on. You know, you gotta be patient.
0: Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. Cause I think there could be a, a career for me as a uh, as backup singer, but speaking of backup singers and changes in life, glad to have you on board for the second week. You're right. We've got uh, a great guest coming on board, and he's going to talk to us about parental choice and what that looks like, and I think that's going to be great.
1: Yeah, he's got a really – he's got, a, really, um, he's got a, a great perspective on it. He's going
0: to bring a lot to the conversation. So, Well, what is uh, – what's your story of the week?
1: All right. So, I mean, I've got – I'm going to sneak in a couple here, Gerard. So first, before I actually get into my story of the week, I need to give – Pioneer Institute, um, a shout out because my colleagues there, our colleagues there. I'm so sorry to be so proprietary. <laughs> um, you know, they're always just in the business of publishing phenomenal reports, and this one um, I didn't make it my story of the week because it's very Boston centric, but. And for any of our Massachusetts listeners, we're talking about uh, Madison Park VoTech here in Boston, which is a school that is just always much in the news. And this is supposed to be, you know, Pioneer has done an excellent job of po- of pointing out really the strength of VoTech programs, but it's also in this report pointing out um, uh, some room for improvement in this particular school that has really just struggled over time to not only with academic achievement and performance, but to give students the path that they need. And I think that what I like most about this report is it points out that in in particularly, um, you know, there's a quote in here from this, is I'm thinking about a a Globe article, Boston Globe article from Pioneer's Jim Sturgis, Talking about the fact that if you're going to have strong voc tech programs and job training in high school, it actually needs to be aligned with what with the jobs that are available in the local economy and the jobs that are available in the workforce. And so, um, you know, this is talking about Madison Park Vocational Technical High School and the need to really have not only um, stable leadership and and better academic performance, but alignment between the opportunities we're giving kids in high school for job training and the jobs that actually exist. So I welcome just so much more conversation about this, but I'm going to, I know I'm always stealing air. I'm always sucking airtime, Gerard, but I also want to point out what I think is just fascinating new research um, highlighted in education next. And it is about, um, you know, our segregation, our segregated schools and special education and the the title of this article, which is by elder, Imberman, Figlio, and Persico. And I'm sure I butchered all of those names. So my apologies to the authors. Um, But it's, it asks the question about, um, you know, the extent to which special education classifications um, are reflective of the level of segregation in schools and districts in our society. Um, So, one of the things that I find so interesting about this is, like, I think people always make the assumption, and it's not an untrue assumption, that um, sometimes children of color, specifically Black students, are overidentified for special education services and may, and or maybe for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. But what this, so what this is showing, what this study suggests, is that I'm gonna I'm gonna read a quote here. So that by the fourth grade the disability rate among black students is 13% lower than it would have been if they were identified at the same rate as white students born into similar economic and health circumstances. So what these authors are highlighting is that when we look at special, identif- special education identification, which as we know, it's so important, having the right supports in a school can be life-changing for a kid as long as they are the right supports, right? And as long as, um, as you know, we're, we're talking Talking about real tailored special education services done right, so that kids are given opportunities, not um, not having opportunities taken away. But that we can't just look at it in terms of. Um, these in terms of broad strokes we have to look at the types of schools students are attending and we have to look at the other kids that they're going to school with and perceptions of who the kids are that are being identified compared to the perceptions of kids that they go to school with because it turns out that when black students in particular and and also hispanic students but not quite as much are in school together that are that is in in schools that are more segregated basically um they're identified Less. And so I just think that this is it's a really thought-provoking report. I regret that I, I don't think that we have been talking enough about supports for our exceptional students, our um, our differently abled students during the pandemic. I certainly don't think we've talked nearly enough about what we're going to do to help those students, especially those who couldn't engage um, during online learning. Um, once once schools do reopen. And so I welcome reports like this. And I think it gives us all a lot of food for thought.
0: I'm familiar with a couple of the researchers you cited and you got their names correct, at least for those two. So that's a good thing. And I I'm glad we're talking about the subject for two reasons. Number one, I'm on the board of trustees for a group called Respectability. And it's a national nonprofit that actually is in business to help fight stigmas associated with people with disabilities and to also advance opportunities for them. We know that there are approximately, what, uh, six million children uh, in the United States who have a disability label in which we speak. But you're actually bringing in a nuance about race, which we often overlook. Which brings me to the second point, and it's something that you referenced. In a previous life, when I was president of Bayo, we received a grant from George Soros, um, foundation through its black uh, male initiative. And we actually worked with 3,000 black parents in nine cities who had their boys put into special education programs. Now, there are definitely some of them who should have been put into special ed. And what the researchers have identified is maybe we should have even done it earlier uh, to avoid some of the problems with their, uh, that we would see had their white peers uh, been put in the same situation. But we also know a number of Black boys are oversubscribed to special education for so-called behavioral reasons, mm-hmm. attitude reasons, or otherwise. So I'm going to do a deep dive into that article, and I definitely think uh, we should probably get someone like Jennifer Machrani, who's the President of RespectAbility, on to talk about this important topic, because it's something that impacts more families than we know.
1: Absolutely.
0: So my story of the week is about COVID, and it's an article about our colleague- Wait,
1: about what? I'm sorry, what?
0: COVID, yeah. We've, we've oh, well, about have to explain that We're going to weigh in on this one. <laughs> and this is from our, my AEI colleague, Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and it's from Bloomberg Opinion. February 22nd, and the title, K-12 education will never be the same after COVID-19. I said, I agree, and then I read the subtitle. went, oh. It says, if it turns out that support for sports was all that was holding public schools together, the system is in trouble. And I like, oh no, this just can't be about sports. And lo and behold, she identified something about sports. She talked about Westchester County, where she lives, and that many of the parents were keeping their children home to protect them from COVID, and we understand that. And some of them did it to ensure that they wouldn't be forced into weeks of quarantine if their child was exposed to a classmate who had COVID. We got it. And then she went on further to say that some would actually continue to send their children to social events and to practice while keeping their kids from school. The priority was not in-person learning, but to ensure That their life outside of school went on as usual. And then she says, speaking of sports, some parents have basically said, we're gonna make sure that our kids remain eligible to participate in athletics, even high risk athletics uh, activities, even if it means we have to keep them home during the daytime or do something on a hybrid level. And so I was kind of, you know, I was stuck for a second saying, I actually hadn't thought about that in part because our children are not involved in sporting activities, although they are in school full time. But I shouldn't be shocked. You know, for some parents, yes, if it means getting their children activities with their peers for an hour, two, maybe three after school, I see. So I'm a little mixed. I understand why some parents do it. But she may be on to something that we're elevating sports above academics at a point when we say COVID matters.
1: Yeah, I, I think she is. It's, it's really fascinating. I've seen this among, among friends and some family members, in fact, and I think it's, it's probably more prevalent. I mean, my kids are on the younger side. It's Mm -hmm. more prevalent, I think, among, among folks that I know who have older children, where these things are really important part of their social fabric or, you know, um, uh, you know, if parents are harboring hopes and dreams that this is going to lead to a college scholarship or something mm-hmm. like this, but for, but mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, and I agree with you that it is it it is a bit confounding in in some respects. Until of course, maybe you talk to folks one off and you and you think about their their own reasoning. But I love that she's bringing this up, and and I am with you. It's kind of a great title. <laughs> you sort of like, oh, this is what we're going to talk about. So nice one.
0: Yep, I did not see that one coming.
1: No, absolutely not. Well, okay, Gerard, we are going to leave it there because coming up right after the break, we are going to be speaking with Tommy Schultz of the American Federation for Children and um, one of Texas's newest residents right after this. Listeners, if you know anything about school choice, then you know our next guest, Mr. Tommy Schultz. He is currently the vice president of communications and marketing for the American Federation for Children or AFC, and he will soon become AFC's next CEO. We are all very excited for that. AFC is the largest school choice advocacy group in the U.S. dedicated to empowering families, especially lower-income families, with the freedom to choose the best K-12 education for their children. In his current role, Tommy has been featured on, well, a variety of outlets, Fox News, The New York Times, SiriusXM, One America, U.S. News and World Report, The Washington Post, CNN, Washington Examiner, National Review. It, It goes on Even Political Education Week and The Hill, and that's just to name some of the outlets in which his work has been featured. Before joining AFC, Tommy was a spokesman for presidential, gubernatorial, and congressional campaigns in New Hampshire, Iowa, and Tennessee. And in between campaign cycles, Tommy had stints with leading public affairs firms in the D.C. area. Tommy is Catholic. He graduated from Stanford University and... He was a three-time all-American trap shooter in high school. Tommy, we're really happy to have you. How are you doing today?
2: I am great. Thanks for uh, having me on here. You're both uh, people that I look up to, deeply respect. I try to read everything you write and listen to everything you put out there. So I'm glad to finally be on the show and excited for the conversation today.
1: Oh, we'll take that, my friend. Gerard and I will both, I'll speak for him. We will take that. That is very sweet of you, very kind of you. Now, listen, just before we um, get into the nitty gritty here, you recently moved to Texas. So first of all, how are you and how is... How is Texas right now, given that we're recording this just maybe like a week or two after folks were getting power, not even two, maybe a week after folks were starting to get power and water back? um, How are things? I know you were very excited about this move. So tell us a little bit.
2: Oh, look, well, Texas has been amazing. It's the happiest that my wife and I have probably ever been in terms of places that we've lived. So that's all great. You know, yes, the snow apocalypse that hit a couple of weeks ago, uh, we're reporting here on March uh, first, and first. uh, yeah, the, the years has gone by so quickly. But the the snowpocalypse was a bit scary at times. I'm generally well prepared for most apocalyptic scenarios in terms of <laughs> food, water, protection of sorts. Uh, but this one was a little dicier because I these Texas homes, uh, we're renting a house right now, uh, they're clearly made for the summer uh, and dispersing heat yeah. as quickly as possible. So. I mean, it got to within the 30s in our inside the house at certain points when the power was gone. And but look, we were blessed; we kept you know kept things afloat here, so to speak. And but you know, a lot of families really suffered, and my heart just breaks for them because I mean, there's no way to really prepare for this if if you're not you not know accustomed all. to. You know, I lived in Iowa for a bit. I lived in New Hampshire, faced some tough snowstorms and. You know you're I'm always trying to think ahead like that so I feel bad for a lot of Texas families and my my prayers go out to them for sure but loving yeah. Texas overall
1: well we're glad you're okay and our thoughts and prayers are with people who continue to struggle and yeah I think not even we hardy northeasterners are uh, prepared for 30 degrees inside the house that's a that's a lot of gear that one would need to stay safe and warm so and as I told you at the outset your cowboy boots Probably not made for that. If if anybody (laughs) knows Tommy, he's famous for some awesome boots. So let's dig in here. Um, There's just a ton of stuff that Gerard and I want to talk to you about today. But of course, you know, here we are – It's March 1st, new administration, um, in the past four years did see some activity uh, around private school choice in Washington, D.C., trying for a federal tax credit to incent states to create private school choice programs, among other things, um, tax credit scholarships, um, you know, I, I I said to you, I want to ask you what you think we can expect from the Biden administration when it comes to school choice, including private school choice and charter schools. But I think to expand that question, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you think we can expect at the federal level versus what it is we're seeing with school choice in the states in this moment. What do you think?
2: Uh, that's a Great question. I think what my expectations are for the Biden administration, um, I would just say they're low. So I will be pleasantly surprised with any sort of good things happening in the educational choice realm. I think uh, we're currently going through various forms of uh, appropriations and bills and whatnot that I think will be interesting to see what they do in terms of the charter school program and kind of funding on that front. But I think, you know, I have- far different expectations, and I think at least realistic predictions about good things that will be happening in the states. And we're already seeing it. I mean, we are early into or halfway through some of these legislative sessions or hitting some critical deadlines out in the states. And it's pretty remarkable, the movement that we're seeing, I think, in contrast to even last year. uh, And I think much of this is due to what the impact of all of 2020 and the pandemic or rather the reactions to the pandemic um, have, I think, really just overall shifted the sort of Overton window about our our schooling and how we're how the teachers unions have operated over the past year. I think we look at the fact that, look, there is I mean, essentially been a national teacher strike for the past year uh, and parents are furious at this point because they're seeing even I saw today and pushed out a video about it. You know, the head of the Berkeley teachers unions who is out there saying, look, it's unsafe for your children to go back to, to schools. And yet he's sitting there taking his own daughter and caught on video to an in-person private school uh, on, a, I guess, multiple days a week, which I think for millions of parents, they haven't seen Sort of the political gross underbelly of the public K through 12 system, to you know, in the way that Kara, you and Gerard probably have seen it for many, many years, and I think a certain segment of the population is now radicalized to this notion that we really need to switch things in our education system, and that's um, providing some new leverage in this political conversation at the state level, such that many governors, I mean, are really themselves furious because. They're seeing the reactions in the in their states to what is pretty much anti-science, or they're seeing how the teachers unions are utilizing this for political extortion in some way. And I, as of my last check, I think 27 states have introduced pretty significant educational choice legislation. Not only, and so there's like the overall number, which is pretty large and encouraging in terms of number of uh, states that have put forward legislation that's trying to give families more uh, control over their child's K through 12 education. But I think too in the in, when you look at the scope of what within each of these states what they're trying to accomplish, there's some pretty big pretty big bills that are trying to do some big expansions, some states going from pretty much zero to one, right with no educational choice laws on the books that are considering legislation. So I'm overly uh, well, I will say I am uh, cautiously optimistic, but I think I'm almost overly ambitious in terms of how I'm thinking that this is going to be uh, a really good set of years for giving families the freedom to finally choose and control their child's education going forward. So long-winded answer to your, but <laughs> what seems like no but- easy question, but I think uh, two different uh, types of answers that I think convey my level of Lack of uh, major thought on, in terms of, a, hey, don't think D.C. is going to be doing a, a, a tremendous amount in terms of pushing for educational choice in this administration compared to states that are really, I think, going to be pushing the envelope.
1: Yeah, no, I thank you for that, Tom, because you know, it's not something that we've um, although we've been seeing this momentum, and of course, Gerard and I watch this in our day to day. It's not something we've talked a lot about on the learning curve. And also thank you for talking about, yes, the time that we've spent with the in the political underbelly of, <laughs> of education. One of the things that I'm noticing, I, I really agree with your take, noticing, but still struggling with a little bit. Of course, here up in one of the states that still has, I was just looking at a tracker today, I think put out by AEI, um, that still has one of the highest percentages of kids who are learning full-time at home, right? Or or I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. the lowest percentage of kids that that are actually in school face-to-face. And one of the really interesting conversations I'm having with folks is I think that even like parents and others who've never had occasion to really be worried about this are now starting to differentiate between their teacher- who they love and don't want to pin any blame on, nor should they probably, because we have teachers that are working their, you know, working their tails off to try and deliver um, what is probably an inferior form of, you know, virtual learning to kids. But at the same time, parents saying like, I can love my teacher and still realize that this system, and I'll name it, of which my teachers are part, right, is really not serving my kids. And so even in states where you wouldn't expect it, I think that you put your finger on the kind of momentum. But I've, I've got a follow-up question for you. And that is, so you're sitting in Texas and that is a state... That surprised us by using some of its the la- some of its CARES money um, to launch what is essentially a choice program. Um, it's for it's for students with special educational needs, um, but it's like an education scholarship account so that families have more flexibility in accessing services for their students. Um, now, this isn't about private school choice necessarily, but it's about families, it's about kids. And let me say it again. It's in Texas. This <laughs> so is not, not, <laughs> not known to be a state that, um, that has embraced such reforms in the past. Are there other states that are surprising you or like really making you wake up and go, whoa, can't believe this is happening there?
2: In terms of outright surprises, I guess I'm not really seeing ones that just blow my mind in terms of, oh, I had expected nothing from them. And then all of a sudden they're doing unbelievable things. I do look, though, at how whether it's, you know, from Florida to Oklahoma to Iowa, where so many states, whether either through federal mechanisms or through their state legislatures and kind of their own process, they're pushing forward an agenda that is really about shifting the kind of cultural, academic, social formation of children back to the parents rather than to the bureaucracy and keeping it within the red lines of the school district and letting that single provider sort of dictate and operate schools and dictate the kind of essentially the outcomes for a family. And so to me, that's what's really exciting. And I think more than ever, there's been a sea change, um, partly due to, again, the the actual pandemic that brought people into a Zoom schooling environment, which, as you said, is probably inferior uh, for the vast majority of children. For most kids, um, yeah. but it, but then at the same time, I think that further second layer of reaction, right, because that's where I think the 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 momentum just went in a different direction in that, look, parents were willing to say, hey, look, we got to fight this this pandemic. We don't know what's going on. Let's take a break for a moment. Right. Let's go into this lockdown situation. But then, you know, now nearly a year later where some kids just have not had a single day of education since then. I think there's a real difference in what is, uh, I think parents are now perceiving in terms of when they're looking at their K through 12 education system, they're thinking about the forces at at work. They're massively confused by all the guidance that they're getting from any number of different uh, interests that control the system. To me, I think that's where parents are finally starting to go, wait a minute, let's take a moment and look at this. Uh, And I don't know. I I am younger to the movement of sorts. I I only fell into this movement and fell in love with this movement uh, around 2015. But I in my kind of assessment of, you know, going backwards to me, uh, other than maybe around the kind of 2010 era where you had, you know, waiting for Superman and you had a whole bunch of states pushing forward some pretty bold agendas. I don't think that I mean, I struggle to find another example of, gosh, there was another moment In either recent memory or even long term history uh, in K through 12, where we've seen such a dramatic uh, shift in public perception of things. And I think many of these governors are trying to say, look, now is the time to finally do some parent focused, you know, student centered uh, policy changes here for the better.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's a. I think that take is is spot on. Let's let's stick with this theme of what's happening in the states for a minute, Tommy, because um, you know, despite what happened at the federal level this year, it's over time Republicans have quietly and and to this day they're still gaining dominance and power in state legislatures. So now. Many, um I think incorrectly, have traditionally thought about school choice just as a red state thing. And if we if we think about the origins of school choice, it was uh, not a red state thing, um necessarily. But it's become characterized as such. Um, and that might lead some people to say that, wow, okay, um, school choice is going to be a lock um if we've got, you know, red state legislatures. But that's not always the case. Can you talk to me a little bit about, well, talk to us, I should say, a little bit about what you think, um, you know, we'll see not just in the pandemic, but going forward in state legislatures and talk specifically about um, states with large rural populations, because that's one of the places where we don't always see um, Republicans on board. Uh, they they question, they say, what, do you, what are you talking about? School choice in rural America? How does that apply to me? Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. I think in states in particular, as you're describing this uh, dynamic where you have red states, you have maybe some of these red states have a pretty significant rural population. There is some resistance or at least there's a talking point or even a myth out there that, hey, look, this will either hurt our rural school systems. This will you know, there's no way a kid can access that private school or a charter school. Uh, unless, you know, they've got their, you know, zone district public school type of situation. I think we've seen that argument in so many legislatures, whether it's Tennessee, Georgia, Texas, where I am now for that, I think is being upended. At least the the talking point itself is being upended because you point to a state like Florida or even Indiana, or you look at, you know, other states throughout the Midwest that have pretty significant rural populations, who are able to make choice work within that Kind of marketplace. And Florida, I mean, is the, I think, really North Star in much of this discussion about where should we be looking for guidance in terms of crafting the best education policy out there. I think uh, Florida, in many ways, has been this unbelievable example of progress over the past 20 years. And they've got a lot of rural schools out there. I mean, it's not True. all of Miami, right? It's a little different. And even within Miami, which I think if I recall, I mean, there's like a 100 different languages spoken within the Miami school system. So, I mean, it has its own set of challenges. But in particular, this rural equation, I think, really sells short, or at least the talking point that, like, look, uh, choice will not work in these rural states. I come from a farm. My parents were farmers and Uh, I was blessed to go to a private school and my parents were willing to drive an hour each way uh, to get me there because they believed so wholeheartedly in giving me access to a great education when I was younger. Uh, To me, we actually tested some of this in some public opinion polling saying, look, what would you be willing to do to give your child, if you could get free access to any school that you want to send your child, what might you be willing to do? So we asked things like, you know, kind of innocuous things like, Hey, would you be willing to give out, like, or give up, like, takeout food for a year? Would you be willing to give up coffee? And I think, Carrie, you were at one presentation where I said, I think all the people who said they were willing to give up coffee for a year were lying to us, but
1: totally. Uh, <laughs> and post pandemic, you'd have to rearrange the takeout question because oh, I don't know. T-
2: totally. <laughs> but this is before the pandemic. But I remember one significant one that said the vast majority of people living in rural areas were saying, Yeah, I'm willing to drive 20 or 30 miles each way to get my kid to a school, or I'm willing to make other significant sacrifices like, you know, moving if I could, or taking out a second job. I mean, to me, I think what I've learned most importantly in my development as a school choice advocate is that there's something else going on when you do start providing families opportunities, right? It's not just simply a a matter of, Hey, Hey, competition and free marketplace dynamics is what makes schools better. I think there is genuinely something sort of off the books or off the radar that is parents finally, and for many cases, I hear this from any number of our voices for choice, as we call them, these students that got access to a, a charter school or a private school choice program and turned their lives around or just saw a tremendous impact Uh, what we hear from them is like, you know, some of these families are coming from generational poverty where they never really had what what would be the term agency, right? They never really had an option in so much of their lives. But now all of a sudden, they're able to give their their kids or their grandkids the ability to access a better life. I mean, to me, that is a different dynamic that I think undersells um, or at least is in some ways, uh, paternalistic from some of these legislators who say, oh, parents will never be willing to make a sacrifice or be willing to get access to it. I say, no, no, no. I think actually I've got survey data showing otherwise. And I think you're going to see across your state a real improvement and a dramatic um, shift in the way that your education system is just going to better serve those families uh, who are willing to get access to the best education for their son or daughter.
1: I, yeah, I agree. And I have to say, um, an observation that I have just based on sort of like real anecdotal evidence on Florida, and Florida thanks you for the shout outs, they are very well deserved, um, is that in the presence of true private school choice programs, um, schools will step up in rural areas, meaning they will be established to meet the needs of kids. Um, so, but you have to have, you know, Florida's got a really robust options for parents in the first place, which makes, um, providers say, Oh, Hey, I, I can go here. I can operate here because I can serve the kids that I want to serve. And something that, um, that I don't know, I'm personally want to keep an eye on in the future as we see choice programs, ex- especially private school choice programs expand. But no, Tommy, you are, um, I've, I've served on a couple panels with you and, 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 you know, really followed your work in this area and you guys do some really interesting work when it comes to polling. Talk to us a little bit more. You you touched a little bit on what people say they want. Talk to us a little bit more about um, not only as you've mentioned, what parents are are willing to do to access the right schools for your kids. But who is it in this country that really supports school choice? Because it's often thought of as something that's only going to benefit the people that could benefit from it anyway, right? But here you're talking about, you just mentioned, you know, people who come from generational poverty, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit more about what your polls tell us?
2: Yeah. I mean, overall, the polling tells us that darn near everybody that really matters in this equation, especially K-12 through parents, they all support it by overwhelming margins. And I'll actually point to a, a pretty dramatic poll that I think uh, backs up some of the notions with hard numbers, um, the notions that I was bringing up earlier that, look, the pandemic shifted things. So April of 2020, we do one of our national polls. We say, you know, hey, parents, what do you think about school choice? We have a pretty generic, neutral phrasing of what it is. You know, it said uh, or it showed us that, you know, overall, 67 percent of public school parents supported the notion of school choice. This is in April, right? As you know, pandemic is breaking out. People are going into lockdown. Fast forward to August of that year, 77 percent of public school parents saying they support the concept of school choice. So it's unbelievable how a 10 point jump can occur over the course of what, four or five months. Uh, and I think this goes to show you where there is a massive uh, just this groundswell of support that wasn't, I think, previously there or seen within our polling numbers in terms of favorability for this issue. And I think another dynamic that is a really important one that I see on un- a real consistent uh, consistently across any number of polls we do, and I'm going to pull it up here so I. Uh, yeah, basically, in every poll we ask, look, if it were your decision and you could send your child to the, any type of school that you prefer to give them the best education, where would you send them? Almost like at the, it's remarkable how similar we get numbers back in terms of saying roughly 70% of families say something other than their district school, whether it's private religious, private non religious, charter school, homeschool, virtual. To me, this shows this market and parent demand that is saying we want something else. And to me, I look to these legislators who uh, refuse to engage in this conversation or are somehow beholden to the teachers unions and the big checkbooks that they're waving around in these political campaigns. To me, when roughly I think it's 82 percent of parents are going to a district school versus 70 percent saying that they do not want to go to a district school. To me, this shows where we have so much work to do within this. The choice community writ large, in terms of building, galvanizing, you know, growing this support base, and actually giving them the means to take action and make their voices heard in the state legislatures across the country, that uh, gets me excited because it's a big sort of engineering problem that I'm I'm eager to tackle, uh, in, in at least in in my role here at, at the American Federation for Children, where we're operating in you know 18 or so states on any given year, trying to you know get legislation passed, trying to uh, give families a voice, and their state capitals. To me, those are kind of the two real striking polls that, to me, show we've got. You know, we have a huge opportunity to really finally get in touch with and uh, really build a bridge to so many millions of families that, for probably for decades, weren't even on the radar in terms of hey, this is a captive audience for our message. Uh, alongside the other bit of data that says, look, p- parents. Parents want this, and you know we need to be feeling confident in our position as we're tackling this major problem and trying to re, you know, rethink, re-engineer, or just ultimately make more effective our K through twelve education apparatus, which is spending hundreds of billions of dollars per year in taxpayer money.
0: <laughs> well, that's a good follow up to your point about what we can do in the states. And when you think about the fact that we have you know, 550,000 students who are in what we would call parental choice programs, we've seen some successes and we've seen some shortcomings. What do you think advocates need to do to take advantage of this moment to try to really just explode the number of options and seats available over the next five to 10 years?
2: Yeah, I think there needs to be the easy answer is, look, Push on the gas, right? I mean, really accelerate, you know, go for the big, bold changes. I think there needs to be a real serious evaluation of sort of capabilities, uh, I think, within various, you know, reform organizations or think tanks, you name it, you know, where you are best serving the marketplace, right? Or where you can be distinctly helpful because. In some ways, if everybody is generally doing the same thing and all competing amongst each other mm-hmm. for a certain share of here's what we're trying to do, to me, that's not going to generate the progress. that's not going to generate results and returns. And uh, I think as i you cite the number, five hundred and fifty thousand or so students, out of fifty six million single digit percentage of students mm-hmm. actually engaged in that kind of effort, uh, add in even charter schools or uh, magnet schools, you have some pretty low percentages of students that are actually in some sort of choice option that, you know, not I mean, distinct from like, hey, you're paying out of pocket for just homeschooling or paying out of pocket for private education. You know, I think there's a lot of work to be done still. And to me, as I look, as we look state by state, we're, we're doing this own you know, our own internal evaluation of saying, okay, where can we provide the most leverage in this equation, whether it's the political landscape, the legislative landscape, the parent engagement and advocacy landscape. To me, I think I hope all organizations are doing this. And I think I am hopeful, too, that there's going to be better collaboration amongst these partners of saying, look, we will shoulder or, you know, organization A will say we're going to shoulder the burden on this. And, you know, Mm -hmm. organization B says we're going to do this because, again, if we're all competing in this similar space and not really uh, and everybody, I think there's, you know, uh, some certain egos that get in the way of some equations where if we're all kind of fighting for those kind of minor inches, I think we're going to be missing the big touchdowns is what I'm getting at here.
0: Got it. Well, let's actually shift to coalition politics. Now, you know, in recent decades, the left and the right were able to find some common ground to support charters, uh, school vouchers, tax credits, and other points. But it seems like over the past five years, the middle fell. And many people, particularly I would say left of center, uh, had a big shift away from the right-left coalition, partly driven by teacher union politics, but partly driven by just a shift in the tone amongst, I would say, some of the younger reformers who see anything that's not public as being somehow bad. What are your thoughts on trying to either rebuild a left-right coalition? Or if we can't build one, how can we create a better narrative that's much more sane and safe for conversations?
2: Yeah, hopefully we have three more hours in the podcast to actually get through <laughs> and get to the bottom of this, but I will do uh my briefest of takes. So you brought up some dynamics about uh, a generational dynamic which is interesting it's something that i'm particularly um i'm always looking towards that within the these polls because you know look with my generation the millennials being if not now i mean close to being the largest generation and largest and probably most influential voting bloc within the coming years i've been keeping an eye on what their opinions are when it comes to this issue and i think i'm encouraged to see that look overwhelming support um coming from millennials, African-Americans, Latinos, uh, all, especially within these target states that we're operating in, booming populations, in my opinion, that tell me, look, I think the future is bright for, as you said, either building out the middle or building out kind of a diverse coalition, both ideologically, racially, you name it, that is going to give us a, a bit more of a foundational base that is going to allow us to be effective in our in our policy. Um, at the same time, I think so much of the narrative within the education reform community has been too federalized, I guess, so to speak. And I think, okay. um, mm-hmm. where much of the debate, uh, I'll, I'll probably need to be careful with my words here, but much of the discussion and debate, uh, around this issue is I think, uh, only a partial analysis where somebody might say, well, it, you know, Obama, Biden administration, Trump, uh, Pence administration did this, Bush administration did this. To me, that's missing quite a bit of nuance that is happening on the ground. So there's that one aspect of it. And I think, too, the federalized conversation is largely being driven by many of our dear friends. And they're very, I think, sharp and intelligent people. And I don't think they're necessarily wrong in their analysis, but it is very D.C.-driven, right, where it's kind of within Mm -hmm. the beltway. And I think, again, that does fundamentally miss something when, you know, you get out to kind of a local community school board meeting or you go to a state legislature. I remember hearing from many, many uh, coalition calls and whatnot over the past three years that, you know, gosh, the impact that the Trump administration is having on X, Y and Z, you know, I'd hear that at the federal level. but. When you talk to any number of our state directors or folks that are working on the ground, they're like, those words never really get brought up, Trump or (laughs) you name it, when it comes to these state level policy discussions. Uh, Our opponents would certainly use it trying to kind of make hay with that. I'll give them that. But I think there's just a a bit of a disconnect that can happen in this analysis that I think misses some nuance. And I think in some ways, the choice community assumes too much of itself. When um, and again, this goes back to my we all need to take an inward serious evaluation where I I sort of laugh and people are saying, well, we're doing this and changing the conversation here or, you know, we have been saying this and, you know, we're just not seeing movement in the numbers or we're getting enough parents activated. And this goes to this uh, sort of political science slash, you know, engineering notion that like, okay, let's take a let's just ask why we're not making headway. And it's like, okay, how many people are we reaching with our kind of media penetration. How many parents do we have on our email lists, right? I mean, you kind of do this analysis and it's like, well, gosh, no wonder we aren't, you know, moving polling numbers or we aren't having this sea change in public perception around the issue. I mean, we're only talking amongst each other in some ways, or we're only reaching a few thousand people that are kind of directly within our sphere of influence and we're not thinking about the larger 56 million parents that are out there and how we're trying to actually capture their attention, influence them, bring them into our fold, Uh, to me, this is where some of this top-down notion that comes, even within the choice community, that is really trying to promote a bottom-up agenda, I think misses something. So that will probably be my answer to what I think could be a whole day-long retreat discussing (laughs) those dynamics, Gerard. Well,
0: speaking of retreat, uh, congratulations on your soon-to-be-new role as CEO. And I knew your predecessors know you as well. And each one of you brought to the position uh, some unique attributes and assets. One of your many is understanding communications. And so much of what's gone right and wrong in the choice movement has been articulating our message and oftentimes knowing how to articulate it to different audiences. You bring up a really good point about the states. You're right. So much of what we've talked about has been federalized. Well, let's leave D.C. Let's go down to Texas where you are right now. You've also spent time in California. Um, for those of us who are interested in this subject and the importance of communication, how important is a communications message going to play at the state level as it as it relates to talking about parental choice, but also galvanizing people, in fact, who may, or may not even have children in schools, but who pay taxes and who want to see people
2: Invest into their economy great question. I think at least how I am attempting to approach it humbly is just understanding look in some of these states we actually do have a you know significant database of parents that we are trying to engage with or we're communicating with in some states we do not have it and my background in actual political campaigns sort of taught mm-hmm. me this hard lesson that look you know if you're You know, let's just take a simple kind of digestible example where, look, hey, we got to get people to vote for us. You know, you we have to knock on this many doors because we know that this many will actually open the door and this many will actually talk to us. Uh, This many will actually be persuaded by our arguments. So you kind of work backwards to say, look, if I need to get X number of voters, at least based upon historical trends, I need to do, you know, Y in terms of work. And I think trying to take that approach at the state level is how I'm viewing this, and just working through these dynamics of okay, if we really need to, you know, influence policy, what does that mean? It Means we have to get this many people elected, and we have to have, mm-hmm. you know, we we need to see okay, there's these many open seats that we need to work within the electoral sphere. Also, too, how many, you know, what like let's look at our opponents and let's say okay, the teachers unions, how many. Uh, folks that they have within their database that they're going to uh, push the button and suddenly melt the phone lines and inboxes of these legislators during a legislative session. So you know, I think we need to then build out our own capacity and see, okay, how many parents do we really need to start getting to take action? And so much of this, I'm realizing, you know we're we're sort of piloting uh, you know new enterprises and new vehicles of you know outreach communications, you name it. so it's a little difficult. We're building, the plane is we're kind of flying off the cliff of sorts. But what I'm really optimistic about is that we're getting pretty incredible reception, I think, especially because of the, the time that we're in, right, with 2021. You know, I think we're darn near approaching the one year date for when schools went into complete lockdown and some have not even opened up yet. I think all of that is giving us this, you know, I think new sense of real clear direction and mission with where we're trying to go over the next five years. And again, I'm optimistic because I think we're trying to view ourselves at the Federation for Children as someone who's going to be in service of the greater kind of movement, right, helping all of our coalition partners, helping people, you know, finally either get access to families or really take back the narrative in some of their states that might have been dominated by the K through 12 establishment for so long. So again, another meandering answer to probably what you thought was, hey, this is a simple question. And Tommy's taking it in too many different directions. But ultimately, I feel that the state level dynamics, they're all so different state by state that you sort of have to do just a fresh evaluation of, "Okay, where do we need to get to in this state within five years? How do we build out from that? And then we have to see, too, "Okay, where can we actually be effective and provide expertise or provide leverage on this system? Otherwise, to me, where it's just a lot of activity and not a lot of progress. All your answers were spot on. Thanks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have to agree, Mr. Tommy Schultz. It's uh, you can meander as much as you want. That's what a podcast is all about. And I think we have learned a lot today. We'll have to have you back on. Definitely within a year to see how just how open schools are and and how much um, this momentum that the movement has gained from from the current moment has persisted. I'm with you. I think that I think it's a, it's been a turning point. Always great to talk to you, our friend, despite the fact, I will say that you have reminded Gerard and me that we are not millennials, which is OK making us feel a little bit old, but we'll take it. <laughs> and we hope that you'll come back. We're just, we're so excited, um, for, for your work, for your new role. And thanks for spending this time with us.
2: Now, thank you so much. And I meant that at the beginning that I, I really appreciate and look up to both of you and you're on my short list of, people to call amidst this transition that I just haven't been able to, because I'm trying to deal with some other internal dynamics and and whatnot. So don't feel that I'm neglecting you. I'm generally neglecting a lot of people that I need to be reaching out to. And (laughs) I'm I'm eager to visit with both of you again here in the near future, either offline or back on a podcast. Would love to do it.
1: Awesome. Well, we'll take you up on that and um, take care. Stay safe down there. Okay. Thank you. Wishing you sunny weather.
0: So, Kara, I'm back, and I'm going to talk about our tweet of the week. And this is from Jonathan Haight from February 28th. Did being Dad do the right thing? And he's referencing D.T. Willingham's article that appeared in the L.A. Times on February 28th about a dad who decided to allow his child to figure out how to open a can. And there were two camps. He was a bad dad. He's a great dad. The bad dad camp said he spent too much time allowing his child to do it. The child struggled. Not good for the child's uh, psychology and ego. The <laughs> good dad group said, this is exactly why we should let children struggle and learn and do something. And so there was a lot of back and forth. The article has uh, got some pretty good research in there as it relates to what psychologists have to say. And if we've got to boil it down, the key is, what is the kid's goal for trying to make this work? I would say he was a good dad on this one.
1: Oh yeah, I think he's definitely a good dad. I don't maybe that's a reflection of my own parenting, which is sort of like throw you into the deep end and see where you go, kid. But <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, um even my kids, my kids would concur. I I have a feeling. I have to say that I um I really appreciate uh, Jonathan Haight's work. Um he's written some fabulous books and it's so um his work, I think, tells us not only a lot about the social science literature, but, but one can really, especially when we talk about children, one can really see oneself in um, in his work if one um, has experience with children, as a parent or a caregiver of any sort. So it's fantastic stuff. Thank you for that tweet of the week, Gerard. And Gerard, next week we are going to be joined by Luang Ung, human rights activist and the author of the best-selling books, First They Killed My Father, A Daughter of Cambodia Remembers, Lucky Child, and Lulu in the Sky. She's also a co-screenplay writer of the 2017 Netflix original movie, First They Killed My Father, which means now I have another movie to watch on Netflix because I haven't seen that one yet. So Gerard, until next week, um, you know, I eat some popcorn, sit on the couch, watch some Netflix, stay safe, and talk to you soon.
0: Great. And I might have my girls go open a can of beans.
1: (laughs) I'm going to condemn you for that. (laughs) Take care. Be careful.